Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say. So let's get rolling. Joining me today is Kim Smiley, a perfect name, by the way. And Thank you God. have been dubbed the queen of empathy, which I love. I love it too. Yeah. So I have to tell you how I came to find you. Okay. Tell me. Okay. So I was supposed to have Erica M. on the show joining me. Right. And she couldn't. And she called me because she's a wonderful person. And she said, I don't want to do this to you last minute. I'm going to help you find somebody. Okay. And she said, I need you to meet Kim Smiley. Mm-hmm. And she said she's all about empathy. And I don't know if it was because I was having a particularly hard day. Right. But as soon as she said that, I had tears well up in my eyes. And I said, yes, yes, I need to have her on. Wow. Because I so believe that we are lacking empathy in such a big way in Mm -hmm. the world today. And it just really spoke to me. So tell me about the empathy effect. And let's start with your childhood. Because that seems pretty, um, not your normal childhood. Very exotic, bohemian parents. So when I was three and my brothers were five and seven, Mm -hmm. we started off on a kibbutz in Israel. I was brought up in Montreal, but we started off in a kibbutz in Israel and lived on a kibbutz for six months. And then my parents got a car and started driving east. So we started in Turkey and then we drove east for over a year until my mother. Sorry, what year was this? This this was in the late 70s. Okay. I'm not going to tell you exactly. (laughs) I'm not going to nail down your age. (laughs) Yeah, so it was in the late 70s and my parents um, decided that they wanted to take this trip. And so it was this incredible experience that I have, really, if you think about it, in the most formative time of a child's life. So I was three, my brothers were five and seven, and they got a VW van, started in Israel to Turkey, and then just drove east. So we spent time in India, Iran, Nepal, Iraq, Afghanistan, and my mother got ill in Bangladesh, and we ended up coming home. But that trip, I think, really formulated the foundation of who I would become, and it exposed me to such a phenomenal amount of poverty as a child Mm. who grew up in an upper-middle-class home. So I had a very different vantage point when I was three, and then I think it just formed this, this sensitivity in me that just carried over into the rest of my life in terms of the way that I perceived things. Right. So it's so interesting to hear you say you drove across these countries because for me sitting here in Canada, I think the only way I'm getting there is I'm flying, you know, or if you take a road trip in Canada, you go east to Nova Scotia. You were going across all these countries. I mean, what what was that like? It must have been... um, Again, just fascinating because it's not like you have uh, road stops like you have here. And, you know, like you said, you're running, you're seeing poverty. Mm -hmm. But it must have also created this connection 
between you and the people of, the, of these places, right? Because you must have been um, dealing with them on a level you probably wouldn't have been anywhere else, right? Right. I mean, I was so young. I was only three. So the memories that I have are more like photographs and black and white reels from a film than they're actually my memories, just because right. I was such a young child. But I do have memories, but I think a lot of them were formulated from other people and the stories that I heard growing up. Okay. So I do have snapshots in my in my head of of things that I saw. But I mean, one one example which is completely unempathetic is that because we were in the late seventies and there weren't a lot of white families traveling in Asia at that time, we would stop in places like India and people would literally crowd our car, like hundreds of people would crowd our car. And I have this one really embarrassing story that I just think it's interesting because I was just a little girl that people were trying to touch me when we got out of the car because I had very fair hair mm -hmm. and they had not, they weren't used to seeing someone with fair hair. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to, trying to touch me and apparently, it's really embarrassing, but apparently given what I do now, I would take off my slipper and start like waving it at people to get away from me. Like I was going to hit well, them with is, my slipper. It is an invasion of, of your personal space, really, right? I think it probably is really overwhelming for a little kid. Like I have yeah. a three-year-old right now, and I can only imagine that many people crowding around him, what he would do. Yeah, it reminds me of a story of a friend of mine, um, Heather Greenwood Davis, who traveled the world with her family. And so they're a black family, and they went to China, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. They're taller than everybody, obviously. Yes. But everybody wanted to touch their hair. Yes, that's right. It's very common. Right? That happened and to me in so, Japan, too, when so I lived it was in Japan. Creating, they had to create mm -hmm. sort of these personal boundaries around them because it was it was crazy the amount of people who would just come up and without asking permission. if they could without permission would be touching them because you know so again it's a cultural difference maybe I I don't know because I don't think I would walk up to anybody on the street in Canada and just touch their hair. It's so interesting that you use the word boundary because boundary is at the heart of empathy. So when you're an empath, that is someone who feels things in the shoes of someone else. It's not just feeling sort of a sympathy, which is distance from empathy. Empathy is actually like embodying what the person feels. So my son even can understand it, three-year-old can understand it. So if you, let's say, get hit in the arm, I'm gonna feel pain in my arm, right? Or if you fall down, my body will physically hurt because I have that, that empath capacity inside of me, right? So what you need to do when you develop empathy and when you are an empath is you need to develop boundaries. So I had those boundaries as a child, but as I grew up, I lost them. And I needed to redevelop the boundaries that I had just as a little kid, because I think we're very wise when we're children. Mm -hmm. And we often have these innate sensibilities that we we unlearn as adults, right? Mm -hmm. So because I grew up in this environment of sort of like I was an outsider coming into an environment where people were touching me, I had the sense of boundaries. I've actually never thought of this before. And so you're helping me sort of psychologize myself a little bit. Thank you for that free therapy. Well, listen, I'm, I'm taking psychology part-time at school, so uh, uh, I, feel like, I feel like I'm in the right profession all of a sudden. Yeah, I feel like I need to lie down on a couch or something. Uh, is there a couch in here? Yeah, I, we, I think we're going to get one. Okay, good. So I, I think that boundaries are critical to empathy. Um, when you don't have boundaries and when you're very empathetic, and I can tell that you are just by looking at you mm -hmm. that you're very empathetic and that your eyes were welling up when you heard just the word empathy, you need to basically as a survival mode develop the capacity 
to create boundaries or else your empathy will not be sustainable. You will not be able to sustain it on a go forward basis just because you'll be completely overwhelmed by your emotions. Depleted. Empathy fatigue, they call it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you travel with your family and then you come back to where? Canada? To Montreal where I grew up. Okay. And so then what happens? So this sort of is is the, you know, this was sort of the base for you growing Mm -hmm. up. And then how did this carry for you going forward now as you start to grow um, as a young teenager and into your career? So it's a good question. I I had an unconventional childhood, although I grew up in a suburb after that trip in Montreal. So when people ask me where I grew up and I tell them, they, they think that I like, was from a very typical family, but my family wasn't typical. They were very bohemian family. And we traveled a lot still through my childhood. But I did have a, a just a normal childhood. And I went to school like every other kid. But I grew up with a father that was um, an elite athlete. So when my father was um, was in his like 20s, he was trained with the Junior Canadians, like he played for the Junior Canadians, and he was drafted for the Baltimore Orioles. So athletics was a really huge part of my life, and I, I could actually skate before I could walk, like a classic Canadian right, story. Yeah, that here, is right? a good Canadian story, absolutely. It is, it yeah. is. and I was very into sports and a- athletics, like I played every single sport, so that was a huge part of my, of my life when I was a young person. But then things shift. I had an injury through sport and at that point things really turned for me because I was very focused on athletics and it was this very sort of it was a very pronounced shift because I had to have an operation on my knee and then I started focusing more on school and that kind of is what sparked my interest in um, in, in studying and, and then I, I really shifted gears. Mm-hmm. And instead of focusing on becoming a professional athlete, I started focusing on um, being an academic. Okay. And that really changed everything for me. And then I, I ended up, I was going to be a professor. And I ended up going to McGill. And then I ended up going to school in Boston where I did graduate studies in Asian religion. Shocker, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And women's studies and philosophy. And um, then after that, I lived in Japan and did a fellowship there for a year. And then I changed my mind about being a professor. I decided that I was just looking around at my peer group and I was seeing people that, you know, and they're going to listen to this podcast, so I'm not slagging them, but just I didn't want to go to Iowa. Professor jobs are hard to come by when you have a doctorate in such an esoteric kind of area. So I didn't want to go to Nebraska. You know, I wanted to live in a city. So I shifted gears and instead I started working in the nonprofit sector. Okay. And after I came home from Japan... And I moved back to the States for a bit, to Boston. I was dating someone there, and then that didn't work out. And I moved back to Montreal, and I started working at the Holocaust Center and Museum. Mm. So that was my first foray into the nonprofit sector. I'd never worked in nonprofit before. And it was an incredible education because we built a museum from scratch. So I was always a storyteller. I, I'd, I'd always loved art, so I wanted to work in a museum. Mm-hmm. I never anticipated it would be a Holocaust museum, but I had always been fascinated by human rights and moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. So it just was a perfect, perfect fit for me. Well, as you're telling me that your story mm-hmm. from the very start, yes, it sounds like these paths all converge at totally. this point, totally. like it was meant to be. I believe in that. I don't know where you stand with that stuff, but I believe that things are written. We have 
free will, of course, but I believe that our destinies are written. And I, I believe that my destiny was written. When I was a little kid, this whole path was written out. And it's so interesting that I'm talking to you today because if you were looking at my social media today, you'd see that today marks the culmination of the path that I was on because I've been working since 2010 on the conceptualization of the empathy effect, which is what it was called. We've now taken it to be called Empathy Empire, because that's kind of a little bit of a more catchy name. (laughs) So um, today we actually started the demolition on my flagship location, which is gonna be for my my fashion brand, Kim Smiley. So it's kimsmiley.com. And it's also gonna house Empathy Empire, which is basically an empathy academy to teach people how to develop their empathy muscles. So I love that. So you said this in the beginning a couple of times, and so I'm going to go back. You said when you develop your empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not, not maybe not necessarily born with it. Right. But it's something you can have if you work at it. 100%. Okay. We are all able to cultivate our empathy unless you're a sociopath, in which case it's <laughs> difficult. Like that's right. the only barrier. But if you're not a sociopath, then anyone who's starting at a place where they don't necessarily have a lot of empathy at all, can develop it through the right training. So I've created a course that is applicable for people who are three years old, like I've taught it to my son, mm-hmm. up to CEOs at big companies. And our model is that we go out and we teach people how to build their empathy muscles. Right. It's a muscle like any other. Right. So it's probably something um, people lose over time. I know that um, myself, you know, you get hurt in life and you, you know, you hit road, uh, hit blockades and you start to build up walls. Of course. And armor. You shut down. Yeah. yeah. And you put all that armor up. Sure. And then you hit an age, also like me, where you realize that armor's not serving you so well anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you got to do your degree in psychology. Yeah. And then you tear down those walls and um, all of a sudden it feels like you're very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. when you tear that down. Mm-hmm. But it is freeing, and I will say this, it is freeing when your empathy starts to come back because for me, that I had shut down my empathy for a little while because it was almost a protectionist thing, not to feel how other people were feeling. Of course. Uh, but you know, now that it's back, it's like it's freeing because it, it feels good to, to feel with other to people. To feel, yeah. it feels good. But you'll learn as you train to be a psychologist, you'll learn that you will have to you know, sort of like develop those boundaries back again, Absolutely, right? Yeah. But it's a dialectic. Yeah, you're you're not going to be like impervious to people's pain and suffering, mm-hmm. but you have to develop a certain level of objectivity mm-hmm. in order to be a psychologist, or else you wouldn't be able to do that either. Right. It would be too painful for you. Right. Right. So you're not just um, an academic, though. You're also an artist. I'm not an academic at all, actually, because uh, I, I didn't I didn't even pursue that path. I guess in a, in a way, I kind of am an academic. I mean, I yeah. I didn't follow through with completing the PhD or anything like that, but I think like if we're going to be really honest, in my blood, I kind of am an academic. Um, but I, I'm an artist. Yeah, I'm a self-taught artist. Mm-hmm. And I started doing art when I was about four. Mm-hmm. And art is a huge part of my life. And it's a huge part of my process of working through my empathy. So when I feel things very strongly, one of the cathartic ways that I kind of deal with the feelings that I have is I transpose it onto art. So I started as a painter. Okay. And I did mixed media painting. And the way that my brand began was just completely organically and serendipitously. I was never planning to become a designer. <laughs> Although I did have like, 
I did have kind of ideas about being like a photographer or a model when I was really small. And I did model when I was really, really little. I was never tall enough to really do that <laughs> seriously, though. But I did have kind of aspirations to be in the fashion sector. But what happened is that as I became more immersed and engaged in academia, I kind of was like, no, no, no. This is not for me. Mm -hmm. This world of superficiality and veneers is not for me. Mm -hmm. And also, as I became, I studied women's studies. So, obviously, fashion is... All kinds of hypocrisies there, right? Of course. Yeah. And just, like, the exposure of women and mm -hmm. just the, you know, the, the sort of patriarchal undertones of a lot of advertising. You know, I kind of, like, pushed it away mm -hmm. when I was in academia, but... What I've learned just from the study of religion and just from being a human being and just existentially what I know is that it's not all black or white. So what I'm doing and what I think my mission here on earth is to do is to teach empathy, but to do it through the expression of beauty. So I'm basically marrying or weaving together empathy and beauty to teach empathy and to spread empathy and to galvanize an empathy revolution. And I know that sounds grand and mm -hmm. maybe just like ridiculous because it's so well, lofty. I think it does not sound ridiculous. I think it sounds grand. And so when Erica was telling me about you, she said that you employed um, women who just came to Canada. Yes. And I, like, it, my heart just burst because I think that is just so wonderful that you're you are giving this opportunity to women. So tell me how this works. So the way that it happened again, again, I think it was writ written for me was that I worked in the nonprofit sector. So I started at the Holocaust Museum in Montreal, and then I ultimately moved to Toronto. And it's a funny story. I don't even know if we have time to tell it, but it's a really funny story. We have time. Go we for have time. It. Okay. So what happened basically was that I moved to Toronto into my brother's basement. I, I hardly knew a soul here. And I the reason why I did that is because I applied for a job. I was applying to tons of jobs. And I was getting rejection after rejection. I just like could not get my foot in anywhere. And it felt terrible. Like it was a very low feeling. When I moved back, I had broken up with this guy that I was with for five years. And I moved back. And I had a great degree. And I had, I thought, you know, interesting background and experience. But I just couldn't get a job. So I decided I was going to move to Toronto. So I moved to Toronto, and this guy I know took me to a party of top 40 under 40. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just like immerse myself. I'm going to go to networking events. I don't know anyone. I'm a very open person. I love talking to strangers. You know, this is something that drives my husband crazy. I always talk to people. So I went to this party, this top 40 under 40 party. And just the week before, I had received a rejection letter from Habitat for Humanity. Okay. I had applied to Habitat for Humanity, and I thought this was the perfect job for me. Right. Do you know about Habitat for yes, Humanity? Yes, Great charity. I think it's a perfect job for you. <laughs> it was a perfect job for me. So I got this rejection letter, and I remember, you know, standing at, it was, it was, it was a while ago, like it was, um, it was quite a while ago, and like 15 years ago, standing in the kitchen, tearing up the letter into shreds. I was so upset and I just was like, I just can't catch a break here. Right. Like this is just like rejection after rejection. How am I gonna like build myself back up here, right? So flash forward, I'm at this party and I see this guy that at this top forty under forty party standing there alone. And, you know, we say, Is it odd or is it God? So what happened was this guy, um, you know, I said, Hi. And he was like, hi. And he came over to me. And I said, introduce myself. Hi, I'm Kim. Nice to meet you. He said, hi, I'm Neil. And I said, Neil, what do you do? 
why are you here? He's actually, I'm on a, I'm a recipient of the Top 40 Under 40 Award. I said, wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. What an honor. It's, it's so nice to meet you. And I said, what do you do? He said, I'm the CEO of Habitat for Humanity. Oh, wow. He was the one who had written the letter to me rejecting me. So I said, listen, Neil, I said, this is uncanny that I'm meeting you here because two weeks or a week ago, I was standing in my kitchen in Montreal, ripping up a letter that you had <laughs> <From sent. you. laughs> Yeah. I said, this is just unbelievable. What are the chances? Right. And he, he's a religious person as well. So, so you know, we, we, we talked and the next week I had an interview at Habitat for Humanity and he told me they had received 400 applications and that they had discounted everyone who was out of province. So I was like, Okay. So you didn't even seriously contemplate my application. It gave me a little bit of a boost that I needed because my confidence was kind of, you know, had taken a little bit of a beating. And um, I ended up getting that job. Amazing. And I ended up, uh, you know, I started as a director of marketing and fundraising there. And I worked my way up to the vice presidency role. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredible experience because I got to meet so many people. Like Monica Schneer was one of the people. Mm -hmm. She became our spokesperson person for because she has mm-hmm. a building background and she does mm-hmm. renovations and we uh, launched the women build engaging hundreds of women in building habitat for humanity homes so that's something we it was a worldwide program for habitat for humanity that mm-hmm. builds one home every two minutes somewhere in the world that statistics have probably changed since i was there a long time ago but at the time i was working there they were building one home every two minutes can you imagine that that's amazing their brand valuation is between starbucks and fedex that's how huge habitat is so I worked, I worked at Habitat for two years, and then I was recruited to work in the Jewish community, kind of the united way of the Jewish community. Okay. I don't even remember the question you asked me now. <laughs> I'm like on such a loop here. Like, that, what am I even talking that, that, about? <laughs> that's the beauty of the podcast. We could just talk and talk. We could just riff. Okay, so that's cool. So then I ended up being, um, I was basically at this united way organization called mm-hmm. UJA, and I was um, in charge of the social service sector. So I was responsible for service serving the vulnerable in the community. I remember why I brought this up. Okay, so getting back to that. So one of the agencies that I served and supported was called JVS. They were a vocational services organization. So when I started my business, and I have to tell you the story of how I started it because it's such a crazy story, the, the workforce that I drew upon was from the charity JVS. Okay. And they had a Syrian refugee program. Okay. Where they had brought in and they had partnered with a Syrian organization. Truda had just let in all these Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm. And I was able to partner with them. And I remember, and I could send you the footage for, yeah. for this to, to sort of like bring this to life. I remember sitting in a circle of 13 women with my one-year-old son, Samuel. And I remember interviewing this circle of 13 women. And I had an art translator there, Armenian, because they were Armenian Christians that had fled the, the genocide in Armenia and then landed up in Syria, if you can imagine that, and then had to flee again because of the violence and the war in Syria. Mm-hmm. So these are people who have been through tremendous trauma, right? just incredible trauma. But the beauty of what I was able to do with my business is I was able to hire women who didn't even need to speak English because they're all artists. They're more talented than me, a thousand times more talented. And basically, I would show them what I wanted. And then ultimately, what we did is we hired someone who was a translator. Mm-hmm. I've picked up a little bit of Armenian, but not much. Mm-hmm. They laugh when I try. I mm-hmm. write down words in Armenian. But that that's actually how I got my workforce was through JVS. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So you've given these women a sense of hope. 
Uh, and they've given purpose. me a sense of hope too right. and purpose. And it, it's very around. much, it's mutual. Yeah. It's totally karmic and it's mutual. And the beauty of my business is that I would have never just been a jewelry designer, not to flag jewelry designers. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's fantastic to do something creative, but you have to understand where I'm coming from. I was going to be a professor. I shifted gears, ended up working in nonprofit. What happened? Can I tell you what happened? How mm-hmm. I started in the, the whole yeah. jewelry business? It was like a crazy story. So I was at UJA. By that point, I had switched jobs. And at that point, I was a fundraiser. So my background was marketing and fundraising. At this point, I was focused mostly on fundraising. And I was at a meeting with a potential donor. And we were at the Thompson Hotel downtown. And we were having a conversation the night before. I was in my studio, I had a loft on King West, and I had just completed a series of mixed media paintings. And I use found objects, I use anything I could find, I use gems, found objects like wood, anything that I can find on the street, I'll use it. But I had just become fascinated with antique lace, and also Japanese lace, because I had lived in Japan. We didn't talk about that, Mm -hmm. but I lived in Japan for a year doing a research ethnography. But I started incorporating lace into my paintings. And around that time, a friend of mine was getting married. And in Judaism, you create what's called a ketubah, which is a Jewish marriage contract. And so they asked me to paint their ketubah. And so in the ketubah, I utilized this Japanese metallic lace that you're looking at now. right? So that formed the arc over the inscription. And I literally was sitting in my apartment the night before I was meeting this donor, and I had this crazy epiphany. And I said, these are too feminine and too ephemeral and too beautiful to be on a wall. They should be moving. They should be on a woman's body. Mm. So literally, I took out like my grandmother's, I had this like this old like, you know those cookie, those tin cookie bins? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I took out this thing and had all my threads and whatever from my grandmother, Rose, my mom's mom, and I literally sewed a piece of the lace onto my wrist. I don't have great skills as a seamstress, but I just was exper- I was having fun. I was amusing myself. The next day I met with this donor. He happened to own a hundred clothing stores across North America. And in the course of the meeting, you know, I talk with my hands. You'll be able to see that from this because it's being filmed as well, right? So I talk with my hands and I'm talking about poverty in the city of Toronto. I'm talking about domestic violence, child protection, all these issues. And all of a sudden in my peripheral vision, I see this woman coming over from behind the bar. And I I just like, you know, women have Mm -hmm. eyes in the back of their heads. So I, I see her coming over and she said, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just had to ask you, where did you get that bracelet? And I was like, bracelet? Oh, oh, this? Yeah. Oh, oh, I just made that. You know, I just made that last night. I was just, I'm an artist. I was just experimenting. And he's, he starts leaning back in his chair, right? This Mm -hmm. guy, Jeffrey Wartzman is his name. He was the CEO of Danier Leather. So he, um, he's leaning back and, and we continue the conversation. And she asked me, you know, can, do you mind if I see that? And I said, actually, no, because I, I, I can't get it off. Like I sewed it onto my wrist. I'm going to have to cut it off later. <laughs> so she goes away and then we start talking again. I'm telling him about the needs in the community. And, I, you know, I'm passionate about what we can do as philanthropists mm-hmm. to help alleviate people's suffering in the community. And this other woman comes over and he's like, is this for real? Like, did you pay these people? Do you know them? And I, I said, of course not. I don't, I don't yeah. know anybody here. Like, yeah. And she said, you know, I couldn't help notice that other woman come up to you. Like, what is that? Is that from the Middle East? Like, is that Hannah? Like, what's going mm-hmm. What? Can I see that? And so he leaned back and he said, you know what? He's like, I don't want to talk about UJA anymore. 
let's talk about you as a designer. Let's talk about your business. And I said, what me? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, you know, like you gotta, you gotta do something. He's like, that doesn't happen. That's a sign. Yeah. That's a sign. And me, I'm a very spiritual person. I believe in signs. I think mm-hmm. they're everywhere if we're, our hearts and minds are open to them. I said, you're right, that is a sign. Mm-hmm. And I walked away and as I was on my way back to my car, I conceptualized the business model for Kim Smiley. And the business model wove together the things that I'm most passionate about. So I decided that I would, it, 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 it took a little bit of time that I actually, until I actually did it, but I conceptualized the threads as I was on my way back to my car. So the three ideas were that it wasn't going to be jewelry. It was going to be wearable works of art, mm-hmm. that it would not be created in like a big manufacturing facility. It would be made by people who were on the margins in some way. Mm-hmm. So whether they were domestic violence survivors or just you know, people who were living in poverty, I would use women on the margins to create it and sew it by hand. Mm-hmm. And then the last piece and the piece that brings in my academic nerdiness background <laughs> is that I love poetry and have written poetry since I've been a kid. And so I wanted to incorporate poetry into my business plan. So every piece in my collection is named after a poet, either famous Wonderful. or emerging. So people, when they come to my site, they're coming for the jewelry, but they're confronted with poetry. And they're getting a lot more. Yeah, and what we know about studies is that, uh, studies about poetry is that people are often really intimidated by poetry. It's intimidating. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare, right? Mm -hmm. Very intimidating stuff. But I put it in a forum that is completely just it's 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 not at all intimidating mm-hmm. you're, you're looking at a jewelry website I mean this is just like very just chill and relaxed and there's nothing right. to be excited or feel like off put about so people read poetry and a lot of my clients who have become my friend my friend Annette Barzilay says that I have a girlfriend brand which is like an interesting term and it's true a lot of my clients have become close friends they have started reading poetry and for me this is just like an incredible sort of karmic dividend of of what I've sort of put out there into the universe that Mm -hmm. people are reading poetry and I put Pablo Neruda and Shakespeare next to M.L. Bordner. She's a poet on Instagram at M.L. Bordner. Um, My roommate from Harvard, Jessica McFarland, is a poet. So I put Neruda next to Jessica or next to M.L. Bordner. Mm -hmm. Like this, this is the kind of thing that I do because I believe in disrupting just just everything right you know creating lace rings was a very disruptive notion people are like are you like insane Mm -hmm. lace rings but I did it and and actually when I was pregnant it was fabulous because I don't know if you have kids but my fingers really they started to swell so I couldn't wear my 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 uh, metal rings so I started wearing my lace rings at that point right so for me beauty and empathy and all these things are um, my company the whole business model, although it's a beauty business, I think I'm in the empathy business. I don't want to say business because that sounds really kind of corporate, mm-hmm. but do you know what I mean? I mean, it's about it's about rethinking what are we doing with fashion? How are we consuming fashion? Mm-hmm. We go into a store and we're really excited when we get something for five bucks. But like, think about that. Why is that five bucks? Right. Why? Who made that? Yeah. Was that made by little kids in China or like mm-hmm. in Nepal somewhere? So I'm... I'm I'm encouraging and I'm I'm really asking people to look at how clothes are made. Mm-hmm. There's a hashtag hashtag I made this or who made my clothes. 
this is what I'm about. I'm about a completely transparent business model. And at my new location on Eglinton West, we're literally going to have the women there, kind of like a pizza shop, but they're going to be making jewelry. Because, you know, you like to see how your pizza's made, like the person throwing it up in the air. So you're going to see your jewelry being hand-sewn by women that are from Syria. Because I want there to be total transparency in terms of the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Because I think right now, what's going on in the world, there isn't a lot of transparency. Mm -hmm. And I love that, too, because, again, you're also creating that empathy when people go into the store and they see these women and they see this art and it all sort of it's just one beautiful circle of this whole Absolutely. thing. It's a story. You're it a is. storyteller. You're a yeah. journalist. You're a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. Yeah. And I'm telling stories through jewelry. I mean, isn't that so odd how that happened but the empathy effect was actually storytelling so with the empathy effect that started as a social experiment on Facebook in 2015 Mm -hmm. when I had uh, the gumption and the support of my husband because I knew that I wasn't going to end up on the street Mm -hmm. to to leave my my job because I had a lot of stability there I was there for seven years so the the empathy effect started as a business plan in 2010 Okay. And I, I put it on the shelf and it was collecting dust for five years before I actually did it. And that's like a really kind of important message, Candace, for, for people to hear that it takes time sometimes mm-hmm. for ideas to have their moment. Right. We're, we're very impatient. Mm-hmm. We want things done in a minute. Right. We can learn a lot from Asian religion and philosophy about slowing down. I personally need to slow down. Like I'm preaching like I'm some kind of like, you know, I'm some kind of expert on this, but I am so amped up that I, I, I've i developed a line of mantras actually for my new jewelry line that's going to be launching imminently. Okay. It's called Empathy Jewelry. And the mantras are all about getting us to slow down and to think. It's not about us and the selfie. It's about the unselfie. Mm-hmm. Like it's about what you stand for. Right. But just I I need to pick up the thread of telling you about the empathy <laughs> effect and how it started. So let me pick up that thread. So basically what happened when I when I left my job at UJ Federation, I decided that I was gonna focus on my jewelry business. But I don't know about you. You seem like you're a person also that likes to do different things. Like you're doing this, you're yeah. going to psychology. Yeah. Like people have different facets to their personalities, right? right. So to my husband's chagrin, when I left my job at UJA and decided I was going to go full on into the jewelry business, I decided that that was the time that I was going to launch the empathy effect that I had thought of five years before. Right. And so I had this huge business plan and I had these angel investors that had given me capital from Montreal, from my old world. But I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do this as a job. I'm going to do it as a passion project. And I'm going to launch a sliver of what I created in 2010, which was mm-hmm. a 50-page business plan. Right. And I'm going to create a photo blog. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to test a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And my hypothesis is empathy is infectious. That was my hypothesis. Right. And I chose as my laboratory the most disgusting, toxic place I could find. Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> Facebook, because Facebook is rife with trolling and toxicity and cruelty. And people are, you know, these armchair anonymous trolls that just write lots of mean stuff. Like I've. I used to write for the Huffington Post and I used to read the, the, the comments and I used to like, I used to be almost on the verge of crying mm-hmm. of, of the comment. And I was writing articles about beauty and improving the world through compassion and like the things people say and, and write are just 
it's shocking, right? right. I'm sure you too in your career yeah. have gotten feedback like mm-hmm. that. And it just, it's it's disarming. Yep. And it just, that's where we need our boundaries again, right? right? So I started this experiment and I devoted, I made, I made a promise basically to myself. I really didn't know what I was getting into at the time. Because as a content creator, you understand what goes into creating something that's new. Mm-hmm. So I pledged to, for 365 days, to do one story and photograph a day that would be released at 8 a.m. in the morning to basically frame someone's day. I took the Sabbath off because mm-hmm. we don't work on the Sabbath in my mm-hmm. house. And for 365 days, I committed to doing it. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't know if anyone was going to care. I had a feeling deep inside me that people would Mm -hmm. just because of the paucity of empathy online that we've just spoken about. But you don't know if something that you think is amazing is going to be amazing to other people. You have no idea, right? So what happened was on day five, I posted a photo and a story about a man named Dr. Matthew Morton. Mm -hmm. And I had gone to camp with Matthew in Montreal and he had been diagnosed with cancer when he was 32, and he was given 18 months to live. On day five of the empathy effect, he was celebrating his 37th birthday. So he had lived five years past his prognosis. So what I did with his wife's permission, he, he was very sick at the time, but she did ask him for his permission, is that I invited the internet to sing him happy birthday. And it just, it was like, boom. Like I had never in my experience as a VP in marketing Mm -hmm. seen such a viral kind of campaign. It just went, it went, it went ballistic. It was like a bomb going off a bomb, an empathy bomb. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing to the point where by the end of the experiment, we had over 100,000 followers in over 50 countries. Amazing. And today, there's over 207,000 followers of The Empathy Effect on Facebook in over 75 countries. So so people can find you then. We're, we're, we're going to stop here for now, but I feel I have to have you come back and maybe do an empathy class with us. Oh, I would love that. Okay. So, But where are people going to find you on social media then? KimSmiley.com. Okay. That's where they can find everything. The Empathy Effect okay. and uh, all my handles. It's at Kim Smiley for Instagram. Okay. And Twitter is Sappho by Kim because I originally called my company after the ancient Greek poet Sappho, but then I realized yeah. that was hard for people to remember. Mm-hmm. But Kim Smiley is pretty easy. So yep. kimsmiley.com is where people can find me. And we're going to be launching an Empathy Empire website soon, but that'll also be off kimsmiley.com. So everything right now is is just under my my name. Okay. And that's the way people can find me. And um, soon people are going to be able to visit me in person on Eglinton Avenue West. We're okay. aiming for a pre-Mother's Day opening. Wonderful. Well, as I expected, you were just like a great big giant hug walking into the studio today, and I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. I'm actually really hot. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I think it's menopause, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Could be. Very menopause, maybe. Thank you so much for coming in today. Awesome to meet you. Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. 
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. He had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.